0: Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Matt Dixon, who has written several books on conquering the new battleground for customer loyalty. We dive deep into three areas, One is getting customer feedback without actually having to survey them. Sounds like magic, huh? We also talk about the effortless experience and how do you really make it easy for customers wherever they are in the buying cycle. And finally, we discuss how to take control of the customer conversation, or as he calls it, the challenger sale. You'll hear what the challenger sale means and what you can do to win in a highly competitive marketplace. One request, if you like this show, please leave me a review and share it with others. And subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. It means a lot to me. Now, let's get on with the show. Oh, Matt Dixon, welcome to the Doing CX Right Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Stacey. It's great to be here.
0: So I was so happy you said yes. I'm a big fan and I know you, but let's make sure everybody listening knows how knowledgeable you are. What do you do professionally?
1: Yeah, I, I'm uh, like the world's oldest gig worker. So I've got <laughs> like three jobs. Uh, so I my background is um, as a professional researcher. So I worked for um, about uh, almost 20 years for a company called CEB, which is now part of Gartner Group, which many of your listeners probably know them pretty well, big global research company. And when I was there, I um, I came there out of grad school and I was really interested in studying business, and so it was a, basically a for-profit think-tech. Uh, so we wrote research for C-level executives across different functional areas and big companies around the world. And the practice areas I ran for most of my career were uh, CX um, call center and customer service, and then uh, business-to-business sales. So those are the my areas of expertise. After I left uh, Gartner in 2017, I started working with an AI um, venture in Austin, Texas that uses uh, unstructured data to really replace uh, surveys uh, and to really understand the customer experience at a much deeper level than we can through um, you know post-call surveys and things like that. but i so I work with them part time. i um I'm out there speaking and um, doing a lot of advisory work with companies based on uh, I wrote three books when, or co-authored three books when I was at CB, uh, two on sales, one on customer experience and customer service. And then, um, we're working on a, a fourth book now. Um, so apparently I'm a, a glutton for punishment. So we got that, <laughs> got that going on too. So those are, and then I've got four kids too. So that's, uh, keeps me busy. <laughs> so.
0: Definitely. Oh, I feel like we're, we're, we're clones a bit because I also am working. I'm a mom. I'm living CX by day and yeah. doing CX right <laughs> by night and, So absolutely. Now, why? Why your passion around customer experience and all that you are doing?
1: It's uh, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, so when I was, it was funny because when I, if I think back in the time I was at CEB, there was a period, I started actually doing research in our chief information officer practice and I could barely operate my own computer. So I was totally not qualified to write research for CIOs. I spent about five or six years in our internal new product development group, um, where we created new research subscriptions and research products for uh, for clients. And when I was rolling out of that group, I remember having a, a, variety, a variety of research groups looking for somebody to come in and lead the practice. And I was looking across all of them. And the one that really spoke to me, which was one I had actually worked on launching when I was in new product development, was the call center practice. And it was it's funny because um I think in in some ways you think wow that's that's tough like be you know studying call centers um, uh, it can be it can, it's a tough job as we know uh, it's a tough function uh, to run and uh, and there's a lot that goes wrong in call centers and so it can be you know you really have to be a glutton for punishment to really dig in there but I found it so interesting because it was so approachable uh, for people it's you know we've all had experiences with, customer service and contact centers that, you know, that are good and ones that are, uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot that are bad. It's an intersection of strategy, customer experience strategy, understanding the customer, human capital management, right, and employee engagement, obviously a big part of running an effective service organization. And increasingly, technology plays such a big role in in how these functions uh, operate. Uh, and it's it really changing the game in terms of how they interact with customers. So I, I found it to be just this really fascinating cross-section of all those different things. And so I jumped in and I said, hey, I'll I'll lead the call center group, the contact center practice. And I did that for a while, then picked up the B2B sales group. We then launched a customer experience group. And, uh, and that's kind of where I was. And I just fell in love with all those, those areas. And that's still kind of what I eat, sleep, and breathe today.
0: Yeah, you sound like it's been an evolution, which... For me I f- literally fell into CX.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think most people do. It's it's not uncommon, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah. So you just talked before about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, can you elaborate because we obviously know surveys is a traditional way sure. to get the have the conversations and listen. Yeah. So what do you mean you are doing AI technology in place of, or in addition to.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, so probably the better way puts it, a really good distinction is probably in addition to. I mean, I think that's probably the realistic approach because most CX leaders are not going to jump their survey. I think you know what we've what we've seen over time is that, and you you know this as a as a practitioner yourself is that survey response rate. So we rely on surveys as CX leaders, customer service leaders rely on them, product leaders, marketers, you know, all parts of the enterprise rely on the survey to get feedback from customers to understand what are we doing well, what are we doing poorly, and where can we improve? Um, The problem is that every company out there is now surveying all of their customers at like every different touch point. So I I shared with somebody the other day, I remember a couple years ago, my my airline that I fly with, and um, I won't mention them by name, but they sent me on one flight five different surveys. So it was a a survey for the the booking experience online. There was a survey about the boarding experience. There's a survey about the in flight experience. There's a survey about the baggage claim experience. You know, um, and I think I may have called the call center about to to make a change in this itinerary, and I got a survey about that too. So. You know, um, what's interesting is that all these companies, and we've made it so easy, uh, there's so many big platforms out there, make it super easy for practitioners to deploy these surveys. And um, they they bombard their customers with surveys. And as a result, we've seen survey response rates, you know, on a secular decline. And so most companies, big companies we're talking to are seeing survey response rates hover in the like high single digits, low double digits. So, you know, right around the 10% mark. And if you think about trying to drive change off of such a small sample size, that's hard, right? Because then you start looking really hard at the data and saying, okay, 10% of our customers told us that this, you know, is 10% of our customers. And then, by the way, how many of those customers actually took the time to write in their feedback? Like, here's why I gave you the score I gave you. Because otherwise you're just staring at a bunch of numbers, you don't really know what happened. And so then we're working with really, really small sets of data. And we ask the question, like, is this a widespread problem? Is this something we should really focus on? Or was it limited to this one customer who was really upset about this one thing? And so, when I talk about using AI and machine learning, what we're doing at my company Tether—it was just spelled T-E-T-H-R because we're a startup, and that's how we spell things in startup land. Um, but uh, Tether actually takes unstructured data. So if you think about a company uh, like yours, uh, Stacey, where you guys are talking to customers over the phone through the call center, you're having, you know, email exchanges. Maybe you have a chat functionality. You know, you can chat with a service agent. Maybe there's a case. case management system like a ticketing system so there's all this conversational data that companies are capturing between themselves and their customers we take all of that conversational data and we basically taught a machine to effectively read all of that data whether it's a transcribed phone call chat interaction an email exchange a case management you know piece of data and to predict based on this interaction here is the survey score you would have gotten had the customer actually filled out the survey we find is one, it's remarkably accurate. So we've we've run this across many, many companies. It is a great, think of it as like a great divining rod. Um, uh, maybe this is mixing metaphors here. I was gonna say a divining rod to find the needle in the haystack, but I don't think that's why you use divining rods for. It. But <laughs> it's like a it's like a magnet to find those needles in the hayta- haystack. So if if you as a CX practitioner knew, instead of the 10% of customers who fill out your survey today, you knew for hundred percent of your interactions, here's the subset who were really upset with the interaction they had. And here's a subset who were blown away with the phenomenal experience they got. Like, what could you do with that data? Well, you could close the loop with those upset customers. Maybe you could offer an upsell or cross-sell offer to those really happy customers. Maybe you can use that data to figure out how widespread problems are or opportunities for improvement, right? And give that data to your business partners and say, boy, this product is driving this percent of frustration with our customers this, this amount of the time. Here's how much it's costing us in negative word of mouth, in bad Asian experience, in longer calls, you know, so on and so forth, lost sales. Maybe you could understand what are the language techniques our reps are using, the things they say and they do that create good and bad experiences for our customers. That's only possible with a huge sample size. And so that's kind of what we do. We, are, we do a lot of stuff, but our main value prop is we help practitioners kind of wean themselves from the survey. But your question is a great one because what we're finding is Those companies who use AI and machine learning to do this predictive analytics. So take millions of phone calls and and predict, here's the survey score you would have gotten, but without having to ask a customer to fill out the survey. What's interesting is those companies are now saying, okay, what we're going to do is find all the really upset customers, and we're going to send them a survey. And the survey is not going to say, how was your call center experience? It's going to say, hey, Stacy, you reached out to us earlier today, and we, based on our read of this interaction, it didn't go very well. And what we would like is your feedback about how we can get better and how can we make this right for you now? And we're going to send that survey out before you get on Twitter or Facebook to tell everyone about the bad experience you had. But, you know, that's a really powerful use of a survey because it helps close the loop. It makes the customer feel like they're heard. Very different from that generic survey you get after like every touch point that, you know, again, 90% of your customers are not going to fill out. So,
0: Yes. So, wow, you just said a lot of good things. A few comments. One, survey fatigue. It's like, real to it is real so your example of getting a survey from every single touch point in the journey i get it like the company needs that information the problem is that a lot of times companies i've worked in in my career the departments are not all sharing the information absolutely
1: and absolutely. they're sending
0: their own surveys no right so That's a mess. The silos of organizations and then everybody touching the customer. So that's another topic, another day of doing it right. Yeah. The second thing is, I want to talk about something you're passionate about and I share in common. One of my most favorite metrics is the level of effort. Uh Uh-huh. And I just had a podcast episode with Adam Toporek. We talked about frictionless experiences. How do you create that? You too have a strong belief around level of effort. Share that. And particularly, how does a listener, whether they're an entrepreneur or leading an organization, how do they actually apply the principle of level of effort as a north star, how do you actually do that?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, by the way, I love the term north star. We used to it when I was at CB. That was our that was the thing we talked about all the time. It's like going to find true true north. We called it, um, and uh, it's it's a great concept. Right, it really gets you kind of uh, it, it helps you visualize really what the purpose is and what you're trying to do. So if we go back, so back in um, we started the research around customer effort in 2007. So. Uh, it goes back a long way. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of other research. I know you know Adam and Shep Hyken and many others have have uh, written about this and added to that body of work. And so it's I think this idea though resonates with people. This idea of making it easy for customers because you know the truth is that most companies don't make it easy for their customers. You know their their marketing messages are confusing. Their service experiences are fric- laden with friction. Their sales interactions are not not easy. The products are hard to use. You know all this stuff. And so there's as I like to say, for big companies, there's food for many winters in terms of making things easier. We started this research back in 07. We wrote, um, we first wrote about the idea of customer effort and introduced the customer effort score in 2010, in an uh, HBR article we wrote called "Stop Trying to Delight Your Customers," which is all about the idea that in service and based on our research from hundreds of thousands of customer interactions, most companies think in the service, in a moment of service, when the customer reaches out to you for help, it's not enough just to to address their expectations, you've got to exceed their expectations, right? You want to wow them, you want to delight them, you want to, you know, um, surprise them, uh, and and that makes for a great press release, and it makes for a cool television commercial, and something you can celebrate in the call center. But it turns out, if you study with data, those customers who are who are whose expectations were exceeded are actually no more loyal than those whose expectations are simply met. It turns out that it has almost no impact on repurchase rate, share of wallet, or word of mouth. And so when we dug into it a little bit more, we found is that most service experiences actually don't create loyalty at all. They actually create disloyalty. And there's the nice thing is that when you break down that disloyalty effect, there's a set of usual suspects, things we can go do something about. So it's things like repeat contacts, channel switching, you know, you send your customer to a website or an app, they can't find what they're looking for, and then they have to pick up the phone and call. Transfers, escalations, long holds, repeating information, being treated generically or robotically, throwing up policies and processes that are really just seen as roadblocks by the customer, like that distance them from the thing they really want, which is a solve to their problem. And so the big punchline of the the article back in 2010, and later in 2013, we wrote the book, The Effortless Experience, which lays all this out in a lot more detail, is rather than trying to delight people when things go wrong, the better strategy is to try to make it easier than you make it today, to make make it surprisingly easy for you to get problems resolved. And when you do that, you mitigate the natural disloyalty effect that service tends to have. And when we studied this, we found companies that make it easy in service generate far higher repurchase rates and renewal rates. They sell a lot more in terms of share of wallet, you know, upselling, cross-selling their customers. And they generate much better, much less negative word of mouth and much more positive word of mouth about those service experiences. And not only that, it turns out that uh, an easy experience, a low effort experience is about 40% cheaper to deliver for a company than, than a high effort experience. And so the book, actually, when we wrote the book, it was a lot of it is about the tactics and the and the way the things that low effort companies have figured out that the rest of us can learn from. So I think the data is very cool. It's surprising. It's like head snapping in some way. It's fun. But the meat of it is for practitioners, like uh, you know, people running CX teams, running contact centers, running product teams, marketing teams, sales teams, to really understand. When it comes to making it easy, what is the th- what are the things that the easy to do business with companies have already figured out that we can learn from, and so that's that's really been our focus. You know, to, to your question about effort and and measuring it, you know, one of the things we do at Tether is we have again a predictive score uh, called the Tether Effort Index, which gives a effectively a predictive effort score. So it's looking at the entirety of the conversation, saying here's how hard this was for your customer without having asked them about the survey. And I I think you know. It's, it's ironic because when we wrote the book, surveys were say of the art It was the way you got feedback. Somebody said to me recently, like, hey, did it ever dawn on you that asking your customer how hard the experience was after they just had a hard experience is itself a hard experience? It's a high effort experience. I was like, oh, that's a really good point. There's got to be an easier way. And using the data you've already got, like your recorded phone calls your chat interactions, is a much easier experience for customers than asking them to take five minutes even to just fill out a survey and give you feedback. Like, yeah. why should we have to do that? When we already know that they spent 30 minutes yelling at the rep and demanding to speak to a supervisor and using foul language and, and talking about how frustrated they are with, with the experience they're having. So,
0: Yep. I also, I had worked at Verizon uh, my previous job and something I felt our team did right is not just the surveys, but also we aggregated, and anyone can do this, is social media, sure. ratings yeah. and reviews. Right. Yeah. The unstructured data from there also tells a lot. Never mind the importance of companies responding because people are watching. Of yeah. But when you talk about that voice of customer, um, it is certainly another lots of other data sources in addition to the surveys or non-surveys that you're able to leverage. So you brought up sales before, and I love I love that you you, you mentioned that because the front line, your salespeople, your relationship makers, I like to call them instead of salespeople. There's clearly a right way and a wrong way of selling in this day and age. Can you talk about what you mean, because you've written about this also, is taking control of the customer conversation and the challenger sale?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it is as... For the CX folks out there, uh, whether they're current CX people or just interested in CX, what I would say is that the sales experience really is a big part of the customer experience. And, and one of the things we found uh, in our research—so we started the research around Challenger—is uh, around the same time as around 2008. And um, what we stumbled upon, you know, unbeknownst to us, was um, we went out and studied salespeople. And uh, uh, we started with a sample of about 6,000 salespeople. Today, we've got data on, uh, I think, almost a quarter million salespeople around the world, all business to business. And what we found was um, that all salespeople fall into one of five different profiles, five statistically defined profiles. You've got hard workers, uh, you've got challengers, relationship builders, uh, lone wolves, and problem solvers. Now, across those five, the one that every head of sales wants and wants to hire is the relationship builder. And the relationship builder, who this person is, is their, they're kind of that classic salesperson, the person who's really learned how to sell over the past 30 years, and their approach is predicated on this idea of going in and asking that customer what's keeping you up at night. You know, What are your big problems? What can we do for you? And what you hope in that moment, in that interaction, is um, that the customer says something that you can attach your company's value proposition to, right? So if you, something comes out of your mouth that we can help you with, like, boom, we're off to the races. And what we found is that that was a very effective way to sell back in the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, but things have really changed. And the big change has been that customers, uh, if you get down to it, don't need salespeople the way they once did. So if you think about that, that you know, open-ended diagnosis that needs assessment, that what's keeping you up at night approach to selling really came around before the internet, right? In today's day and age, what, you've, what we found in our research is that the average customer reaches out to the salesperson 60% of the way through the purchase journey. So what that's telling you is the customers already asked themselves and answered the question of what's keeping them up at night. They've already decided, do I need to hire a vendor or supplier to help us with this? Or can we do this on our own? If I need to hire a vendor, who are the vendors I should consider? Who's got the features and benefits and the proof points and the case studies and the ROI that is attractive to us? About how much should I pay for this solution? We put it all in an RFP and then we send it out to a couple of salespeople from different companies and say, hey, have at it, but here's what we want, here's what we wanna pay, come in and compete for our business. That's a very different sales world where customers have all this information. So we found is across these five profiles, what's interesting is, if you look at performance, what you find is that one, the challenger salesperson performs dramatically better than the other four. And actually the bigger head snapper, the gut punch for sales leaders is, the one they thought would win, the relationship builder, the person who prides themselves on going in and finding out what's keeping the customer up at night, doing whatever the customer wants, be the very reactive, very generous, very likable people. They actually finish dead last when you look at their likelihood of being a high performer. And when you unpack the challenger, what you find is they do three things that are very unique. The first thing is they are focused less on uh, going in and asking the customer what's keeping them up at night, and much more on going in and showing the customer what should be keeping them up and done. So they take a teaching-based approach to sales. So what they figured out is, in a world where customers have all this information, where they can figure all this stuff out on their own, they can make up all their own assumptions, and they form that mental model, what I need to do as a salesperson to deliver value, is show them the thing they couldn't learn on their own. You know, what's the thing I know that they need to know, but they couldn't find on the internet? But I know this because I'm an expert in my field, and we know this as a company because we do this all day long and the customer doesn't know this. So that's the, the thing they lead with. They bring that new insight, a new way to save money, make money, avoid risk, any number of objectives. The second thing is they're really good at, they know in today's world of business selling in particular, it's like herding cats. Like you've got to get the whole buying committee on board to sell anything, to a, especially anything that's expensive and risky and disruptive to get the customer on board. And so they're very good at tailoring their message. First of all, picking the right person to sell to. And secondly, equipping that person to take that insight, that new idea, and use it to generate consensus across the buying committee. And then lastly, they're assertive. They hold their ground. They don't cave on pricing. They're very comfortable talking money. They are comfortable telling the customer they're doing it wrong. They live for a good debate with their customers, which is again the antithesis of what salespeople have been taught for years. They've been taught to be deferential, to let the customer lead the way, you know, ask what you can do for them, be reactive and responsive. And again, that worked back in the day, but it doesn't work so well anymore. So we find that challenger approach is really the new way to sell in a world where customers have all this information at their fingertips and just don't need a salesperson the way they once did.
0: So I believe that customer experience leaders in companies such as myself, we have a second job that may or may not be in the title, which is employee engagement. Because in order for people to apply the, the best practices and what you describe, they have to be, they have to know the best practices and they have to be informed and they have to listen to the customer feedback and problem solve as a team. What's your view on the best way to motivate your frontline to deliver excellence?
1: Such a great question, and you know, uh, I agree 100%. The uh, one of the things, so I mentioned before when we wrote the effortless experience, we found there were a few, there are a handful. We call them the four pillars of delivering an effortless experience. I won't go through all four, but one of them uh, was this idea of, look, if you want to get control of the service interaction between your frontline reps and your customers, the way most companies do it is they. They tell their reps exactly what to say and do. Say the customer's name three times, you know, thank her for her loyalty, answer the phone in this way, use these kinds of techniques. They use quality assurance to make sure people are doing that. They, you know, everyone, it's like the, the response in a world of heightened customer expectations and more and more complex issues as as the easy stuff goes away, it goes to self-service, like nobody calls in to change their address anymore, check their balance. You do that online. So people are calling about the tough stuff, the stuff they actually need to talk to a person about, need to talk to an expert about. And in that world, um, what we found is that tightening the screws and scripting people and QAing them to death is the absolute opposite of what you should be doing. That people perform a lot better when you get, not when you take control, but when you give them control of the customer experience and you trust them to use their own judgment. Now, obviously, getting that right requires you've hired really good people and you've put them in a really good environment and created a great culture around them that you've got the right incentives and rewards and metrics that are governing what they say and what they do and how they spend their time, that they know what the regulations are, right? Because you can't get the company in trouble. But outside of that, you should, as a leader, see it as your job not to dictate what they do on the phone or in their interactions with customers, but figure out what's getting in their way of delivering a great experience. You know, I, I tell people all the time, they ask me like, how do we get started on an effortless experience? Should we start with it? Because there are a lot of things you should, you could do, right? You can prove digital. You can think about predictive resolution. You could, uh, you know, lots of different opportunities. Overhaul processes. Invest in technology. What have you? And I always tell them, you know, the first thing you should do is figure out where are your employees are experiencing a lot of effort. So it's hard to ask your your customer service employees, your front line, to deliver a low effort experience to the customer if the job is hard for them. And so the first thing you should do is figure out where we get it as a company getting in the way. Is it the antiquated tools that we ask them to use? Is it the outdated policies we ask them to defend with our customers? Is it the scripts that we ask them to, or the QA checklist or the handle time clock showing how fast or slow they're answering calls and and handling those? You know, Those are all things that can get in the way of, of giving people control, letting them exercise their judgment and making the job itself a lot easier. And so, again, low effort kind of begins at home. And you're 100% right. And, and we've seen in our own data. When you make the job easier, when you give people control, when you let them exercise their judgment, they deliver a great low effort experience to your customers. When you lock them down and you tighten the screws, you tell them what to say and do, and you you give them old tools and outdated processes and checklists and scripts and all that stuff, they are, it's hard for them to make it easy for the customer that all the burden they carry just translates over into the customer experience and your customers come back and say, boy, it's really hard doing business with you. Well, no surprise because you make it hard to work for you for your employees, right? So I you've you got me hook, line and sinker on that one. I will say if, if people are interested in learning more about this, we wrote an article in HBR called Reinventing Customer Service a couple of years ago. It's a profile of what T-Mobile has done in their service organization, which I think is a model for the future about um, how they're really, em- Power, not in a platitude kind of way, like we give our agents the ability to give up to hundred dollar, you know, bill credit or something like that, which a lot of people think is empowerment. That's not empowerment. Look at what T-Mobile has done to really trust their people, and what they've told their people is, "You guys are small business owners. Here's a team of, here's a group of customers. You own those customers. What do you need from us as leaders to get those customers, thrill those customers, make get them to renew, get them to buy more, get them to say great things about T-Mobile? You tell us what you need." Overhaul process, you need new tools, you need, you know, uh, new technologies. What are you looking for? And we'll get it for you as a leadership team.
0: It's funny you mentioned T-Mobile, because I worked for at and Verizon, but never T-Mobile. So <laughs> I know yeah. the other two sides.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You've almost hit from the cycle. <laughs> exactly,
0: the top three. So we have only minutes left. And um, gosh, we could go on and on because each of these have so much we could go deep on. But two questions left. One is a personal perspective and one's professional. So professional, if I had, I ask everyone these two questions, if I had the CEOs and leaders in my room right now, what is the one thing you would tell them, the one takeaway?
1: Oh, gosh, Um, I I think, you know, the one takeaway here, as, as far as what we're talking about, I do think they're, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it two takeaways. <laughs> well, the first takeaway is like, you've got to make it easier for your customers. It is, you right now, I without even knowing who those CEOs are or what companies they run, I can tell you they're making life too hard for their customers. Their products are too hard to use, their brand messaging and their pricing doesn't make sense. Their sales experience is clunky. The post-sales service experience is, is uh, high friction, high effort, right? So there's a lot you've got to do to streamline things and make it easy. And companies that make it easy win. They retain their customers because there's a higher rate, they sell them more, and they generate more word of mouth. The other thing I would say is to take a hard look at the kind of sales experience they're delivering, because it, it, a lot of it starts there, right? That's the first point of entry for a lot of customers is interacting with that salesperson and deciding, I'm going to do business with you. And you've got to ask this question of of, are you telling your sellers to do things that are great for a customer 30 years ago, but really aren't in keeping with the way customers are learning about opportunities and want to engage with suppliers today. Are you really delivering that value is what I tell the CEOs to look at as well.
0: And the last question, you can answer this personally or professionally or both. If you could go back in time with what you know now, what would you tell 20-year-old Matt Dixon?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh man. Um, I don't, 20-year-old 20 twenty-year-old Matt Dixon was, um, was uh, <laughs> Probably uh, drinking too much beer in college and not <laughs> not studying hard enough. No, I don't. I, I think uh, twenty-year-old mathics is good, it's a good question. I think the the thing I would uh, say, and unfortunately, I think it's worked out pretty well. Is and I, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I f- I probably figured it out by mistake. Um, is and you know this, uh, Stacy. But if you're and it's a little bit of a platitude, but I think sometimes young people can and I was, I did this myself, but you can chase opportunities because you're, um, you're looking to make money. You're looking to, you know, um, buy a home or do, you know, buy a car or do whatever. And, and sometimes you can get kind of focused on that. And I think there were a couple of times in my career where I, I kinda, I went in a direction where I was like, I don't know that it's actually going to pay me quite as well, but I'm really much more excited about this. And when you do that, like, um, and you're doing something you love, and it doesn't feel like a job, we hear this all the time, right? Uh, look at LinkedIn; there're probably like 50 posts today about like you should do something that doesn't feel like a job, and it's true. Because when you do that, the money and the success kind of follows, right? And it's and it's and you have a heck of a lot more fun doing it than, you know, being miserable and doing something you didn't want to do, and you know, just to earn a little bit more money. I've made unfortunately a couple of other mistakes in my career where I feel like I kind of chased. Chase money and chased um, uh, the financial side, and then kind of looked around and said, "What am I doing? You know, this is not, this isn't fun for me." Mm. So probably advice that other people would have given to their 20-year-old selves as well, but uh, uh, but that's probably what I tell my 20-year-old self. So, and I and as a 20-year-old, I probably wouldn't believe it. I probably couldn't anyway. <laughs> I have to learn the hard way. <laughs> so.
0: Well, with age comes wisdom, and it is really a fact. So I right. I, <laughs> I do love that, and and. I have uh, young adults, not, they're not kids, they're not adults age. So I will definitely play this advice for them too. I that's some of
1: those too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, thank you. Yeah, so this yeah. is, a, is a. It is hard
1: though, right? It's so hard.
0: It is, yes. So now a bragging moment. I'm going to include in the show notes where to find you, but uh, where I'm, I know oh, people sure. are going to want to find you and talk to you. Yeah. Where?
1: Yeah, uh, no, I, so if folks want to get, if folks um, want to learn more about what we're doing at Tether and, you know, the predictive survey scores and using unstructured data, we are at tether.com. That's T-E-T-H-R.com. And then if folks want to learn about, and you can learn more about kind of my speaking advisory work and books and, and writings, but I also have a website called dixonspeaks.com. Uh, so uh, you can check me out there.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad we got to connect and share amazing wisdom with our listeners, and I appreciate you. Have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman doing CX right.